you get the honor and the glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take your seats. If you look on the word cloud above us, you're going to see that we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Uh, you're at New Covenant Church, and we want you to know that when you come to church, you, we want you to meet with God. Not a God of your own making, not a God of your own imagination. It's not the God that just your grandfather or great-grandfather knew, but your God. When we sing these praises, it's about our good, good Father. Uh, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from him, James 1.17. But when you look at the word cloud in front of us each week, you can see that the reason we're kind, the reason we're uh, uh, caring, and the reason why we uh, are, are are these things is because the scriptures drive us to that point. Being reformed, we just say that God is big in salvation, that man is not. Being covenantal, we mean that God entered into a covenant, that he wouldn't change the terms of salvation ever. And therefore, he's not, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to say, oh no, we got to do more works in order to get to heaven. No way. Jesus paid it in full. And that's why the new covenant is one that he guarantees, he secures. And because we have this, this in Christ, this great salvation, this good news that we can be forgiven, we want to worship. We cherish the opportunity to come and spend time with God and to open his word. Uh, today, let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word as it was given in the originals. When you realize that God preserved this for us, so we, we call it revelation. He's revealing to you and I, even in 2022, the things that we need to know to be equipped for salvation. Today, we're going to be looking into the Old Testament poetry book, uh, excuse me, the history book of Esther. Uh, we'll be looking at Esther instead of chapter 5, it's chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 7. Uh, this is Father's Day, and it is a little unique. I want to make sure you realize that Mordecai is not known as a father. So don't just think that the pastor just got it all wrong. He picked a guy that didn't even have kids. Okay, uh, you're going to end up seeing how this all fits together very well, uh, because Mordecai, in many ways, is an example for fathers. And you'll see that. If we look at our text, uh, let us look at verses 5 through 7 from the text that's provided. You can see it inside your bulletin insert. It's on the fourth page uh, supplement or fourth point supplement. It's probably even on the wall behind me. But uh, this is God's word. And we'll be looking at just, uh, well, we'll be looking through the whole book of Esther today. Uh, but I wanted to touch on these verses in chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel whose name was Mordecai. He was the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish. He was a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, who was king of Judah at the time, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he, that is Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, whose name, her Persian name, Esther, she was the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was, a, was beautiful, and it goes on to say, Mordecai took her uh, as his own daughter. So you can see that there is some uh, parental language used in the text, that Mordecai technically was not her dad, but he was the substitute dad. He was the surrogate dad. And in many ways, that's part of the reason why I was led to this text. Uh, many months ago, 
Uh, I was starting off this series about the family unit, and we asked the question, what is a woman? Apparently that question stumped the uh, Supreme Court justice nominee. She was unable to give an answer about what a woman is. And so when we started to deal with it from the Bible, that's what we dealt with that Sunday, I also wanted to be fair to the men and say, well, what is a man then? And today we're going to see what a godly man is, a man after God's own heart. We, we could be looking at several people in Scripture, but today our focus will be on Mordecai. So keep your Bibles open to the book of Esther, uh, and let's begin by, uh, by, by, by prayer. Lord, I pray that this familiar story will actually be inspirational. I pray that we won't be distracted by the beauty contests and by the feasts, but may we actually look more into what you see. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We learned that with King David, and I pray that we'll learn that today even with Mordecai. Bless the word of God as it goes forth. May it accomplish its purposes. We have great confidence that your sovereignty, O God, will bring about repentance leading to confession of sin, and it will be culminated with the forgiveness of sin. For when we who are sinners confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us even to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to make a place in heaven for us, which becomes available to all the children of God. For you are a good, good father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've already mentioned today on Father's Day that one thing about Father's Day is that um, everybody has one. Everybody has a father, but not everybody has a good, good earthly father. In fact, some people have, don't even know their earthly dad. Some are unfamiliar with him, and some almost wish that they didn't know what they do know about him. Sometimes that is because of death, untimely death by, by health issues, by actual war. If you are over in the Ukraine right now, you might uh, see some children that don't get to see their dads anymore, and some by tragic accidents. We've seen a lot. And remember, you know, it could happen that a shark would come in when somebody's swimming and here today and not here tomorrow. There's a lot of issues that can get in the way uh, due to vice. Some people don't know their dads because of vices, infidelity and addictions. Uh, because this, this uh, abandonment, uh, people end up leaving the, the home setting and they start pursuing other entity, other things. And sadly, some of the worst kind of fathers are the ones who are indifferent, who don't care about anything. Fathers who never engage. It's almost like they barely even know their children's names. But I'm not focused on all the negative. I want to focus on many of the positives. There are many of us who know our dads. You heard it in the testimony that we gave in those cards that I read just a few moments ago. So what makes the man that God called you to honor Honorable. Why did God specifically give you instruction as the people of God to remember your dad? No, it doesn't say remember your dad. What does it actually say? Honor your father. So what makes him honorable? Many of you might think of some adjectives, and some of, them, some of you would probably, even I, would probably want to add to that list. Would if my dad would have done this, if my dad would have done this, would my dad would have done this. 
Almost all of us have daddy issues, don't we? If dad would have had a better income, I would have had a better lifestyle. I would have had this or that. If dad would have had more time, he would have been here for, or there. He would have seen me do this and accomplish that. I was brought one of my props today. Uh, one of the things I cherish on my shelf. The reason I cherish it, this is one of the Bibles that my dad gave me. And with his fountain pen, which my dad was known for, he ends up writing there to Robert, happy birthday, 1977, from dad. Psalm 119.11. I treasure this book because it was a gift from my dad. My dad did invest in a lot of things. He took me around the world and he showed me a lot of lessons to learn. He actually had to endure quite a few things himself. But what about your dad? In the 21st century, the secular culture is seeking to erase dads to dishonor the traditional role of the father because it doesn't fit their narrative anymore. You'll, you'll have a hard time in a lot of places even follow, finding any of some of the woke crowd that wants to celebrate Father's Day. They basically have tried to undermine this starting very simply by accusing a, a people of privilege. If you're a father, you have too much privilege. In fact, they'll go back in history and often say, oh, you were the only ones that were allowed to vote. And now we, we're, we're super grateful that we've expanded that away from just the dads to now it can be all the women. And, and some of them even want to be able to have every kid to be able to vote. You see, they look at the privilege. You've had all these liberties. So once the accusation starts, then their solution is reverse discrimination. In fact, nowadays, you can look around. If you, if you want to hire somebody, uh, the, the person you're going to choose first is going to be a non-man. I mean, that's typically where you go, favoring or preferring any other non-man in effect. Uh, this is, I mean, I've watched it even in my own family, how people are overlooked because they would prefer to get somebody that is a different gender or somebody that identifies with some uniquenesses. But you know, it's not just the accusation and it's not just the, the solution that they have to minimize the significance of, of the role of the man, but it's also the polluting of men, the polluting of manhood, exposing young men to things that they should never be seeing. It is so dangerous to open up eyes to, to evil and to things that should never be, uh, things that shouldn't have to be viewed. Next thing you know, experimentation is encouraged. And in fact, in a lot of the settings, uh, they actually encourage you to experiment without even letting your parents know. Because they want these young men to be able to experience it all. Drugs, drinking, social media. And then the net effect of people who are learning things that they shouldn't have learned, these young men are damaged. And then once they're damaged, you just ask some lady who's looking for a good guy to marry. Where do you find them? Online? Can you even find good guys at church? Is it safe to go to a bar and find one? It's really sad when, when these damaged men uh, are now having to get special treatment. They have to get to patronized. Uh, it, it, often leading, uh, it often causes us to diminish them and put them in the back burner and not to put too much burden on them. The future of fatherhood in this kind of context is not very bright. When will the men stand up 
When will there be another uh, list of cards in 20 years? Uh, and what will they say about the dads of the next generation? Oh, they probably can all change diapers very well. Some of them might actually said, uh, my dad was not a chest feeder or something other thing like that to use woke terminology. But dads are being replaced. They're not even really needed anymore. Whether you use in vitro or whatever, but big brother can replace the father. He can be the big brother can actually give you the income you need, and that can come to your household. Uh, you can be replaced. The dad can be replaced by the village. It only takes a village to raise kids anyway. Uh, or, or in some places, I've actually seen books where it says you can be, be replaced by a second mommy. I think Heather had two of them, according to the book. I bring these things up on Father's Day because our country is divided. There's a lot of people, including your neighbors, and sadly, even some of the people in, people, uh, in churches that claim to be Christian. They're so confused on the matter. They've forgotten to open up the book, and they haven't taken a look. And as a result, they're, they're redefining in many ways what manhood should be, or maybe that it shouldn't be. That that's why you can't define what a woman is because you shouldn't be able to define what a man is because we're all just persons. Our culture is divided. Barna's recent poll, I think in May, ended up saying that 50% of the country is feeling that the country's on the, on the path of destruction. Well, you know what 50% means. It means 50% believe this and 50% believe that. So it's, it's on this teeter-tottering point. On the one side, if you are a Christian, you're feeling like, oh, no, all of the institutions, they're training the kids, they're, they're equipping the kids, they're re-indoctrinating the kids, they're, they're doing the things like Disney's doing or even like uh, with, with the new uh, Buzz Lightyear movie. They're making things normalized with same-gender same kissing and all that stuff. Now, on that's on the one hand where you have 50% feel like we're on the wrong path. And on the other side, the 50% are saying, oh, no, look out for those Christian people, those folks that, that are in a political party or those that are pushing morality. They're going to shove it down our throats. They're going to tell us we have to go to church. They're going to condemn us. They're going to make us feel bad. And they're going to have people committing suicide left and right because of how harsh they are. The truth is, is this is where people are. Christians believe the worldview that says it's wrong, and non-Christians believe it's wrong to tell them that they can't do what they want to do. What do we do? Do we just coexist? Well, the Bible tells us and gives us many examples. Today's message calls our attention to what God reveals as the essence of what makes a great father. And that's what I want to highlight for you today. It's three simple points uh, in, in, these, in, these, uh, in this 10 chapters of Esther. We see a contrast of men, and we will also uh, consider some of the details of the one good guy, and then we'll uh, concentrate on, on the end game, the rest of the story. So when you follow along with me, the first point I want you to see is in these 10 chapters of Esther, it is a historical book. There are three key men that are brought to light. The first key man is Ahasuerus. I don't think anybody's named their kid after that. Uh, it is a, uh, it is a, a foreign name. Um, it is from Persia. But Ahasuerus was popular because he was the king. The second man that we're introduced to in the text as it flows is Mordecai in chapter 2, verse 5. And that was part of our text today. 
Mordecai was just an average Joe. He had been taken in exile. He was relocated. He was basically an immigrant, not by choice, but by force. And uh, he was trying to make do in this new country. But then there's a third man that we're introduced to, and his name is Haman. Haman. Again, Haman does not, uh, even though if you look at the beginning of Haman's story, you would have thought everybody would name their kid Haman. This guy was the, uh, he was the big man on campus. So when you look at these three characters, I summarize it for you, is the first was a man in charge. That's the king, Ahasuerus. Uh, I'm telling you, he was in total charge. And uh, then the second was the average Joe, the common man, and that was Mordecai. And third, there was the man with the plan, and that was Haman. Now, when you see these things, these three men, I want to contrast them for you. The king had all authority. In fact, respect was so required that when you read the story of Esther, you're going to find that if you didn't treat that man with respect, what happened to you? You would die. I mean, it really seems unfathomable that a man could have that kind of uh, respect. That if his beautiful wife comes in, if he didn't lift the scepter for her, she would be put to death immediately. Or this, as the story goes, when we meet her, when we meet to King Ahasuerus in the first chapter, he's throwing banquets. He's having a great time. This is the this is the golden days of the Persian Empire. I mean, everything seems to be going great until a woman messed it up. She was a beautiful woman, too, but that wasn't what the issue was. Nobody really cared that she was that pretty. The issue that all the guys were concerned with is that she refused to listen to her man, Queen Vashti. Now, women's livers today would say she was a great gal. She's nobody's slave. She can do what she wants to do, and if she gets called to the king's throne, she doesn't have to go. She's free. In fact, it's her prerogative to say so what now if you look at the story this mattered a lot the king who had all authority had to keep all authority and when someone refused to yield to that authority something had to be done so that they got the council together and they figured out that they had to ban her they had to punish her they had to basically say goodbye Vashti now they didn't kill her I'm glad they didn't but they basically humiliated her and they wanted to make sure that no other woman in the kingdom would do what she did. You need to show respect to your man. Hmm, what an interesting man. How many guys would like to be king for the day? Now, that's the first thing you find. The second person you find is the average Joe. As I mentioned to you in chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, now there was a Jew in Susa. He was in the capital city there. His name was Mordecai. And it tells him about his dad and about his grandfather and about his tribe that he comes from. Did any of you pick up on that? What tribe did, did Mordecai come from? Benjamin. Did you notice that one of his relatives was named Kish? Oh, well, if, you, if you're familiar with your Bible, that's also going to trigger some memories. There was another great guy that was from Benjamin. His name was Saul. Saul was a tall guy, stood head and shoulders above the rest, and God ended up putting him to be the first king of Israel. He ruled for 40 years. He was a, from the tribe of Benjamin, and so his dad was named Kish as well. Now, what we do know is that, that, uh, that they were distant relatives. They're all from the same tribe. 
Benjamin always was matched up with the tribe of Judah. They always seemed to be uh, almost like a couplet. You couldn't separate Benjamin from the protection of Judah. But in your look at this story, uh, what we learn about this common Joe named Mordecai was that he had been he had lived in Jerusalem, but he had also experienced the stuff that made Jeremiah cry. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, lamented. You can read Lamentations. It was so sad seeing the people of God humiliated. Mordecai, just like Daniel, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was taken captive and taken to the citadel. Wow. He was, he was in this foreign land as an immigrant, not wishing he was there, but probably sad that there was nothing he could do to fix it. That's the second man. The third man that we find is the man with the plan. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted this fellow named Haman, the Agagite, the son of uh, that special name, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had given that kind of uh, authorization. So what you have is this third guy named Haman, and uh, he's an Agite, a Gagite, uh, and so we don't know a whole lot about him there. But if you read the rest of the text, you're going to find that he, uh, he had some smarts. This guy was a wise man. In fact, the reason he caught the attention of the king, the guy with all the authority, was because Haman had a plan. Haman could, could plot things out. He has an agenda. He has a, a will of his own, and he's figuring it out, and he, would ab he was able to market himself and to be able to say, hey, king, I can make your life better. Now, those are the three people, the, the three men, the three caliber of people, and I wanted you to see the contrast. Okay, The one man trusted in counselors. That's the king. The other man trusted in God. That was the average Joe named Mordecai, and the other one trusted in his plans. He trusted in himself. He leaned on his own understanding, and that was Haman. Do you see the three kinds of men? Once you see that, then let's go secondly to the main point of this, is that um, I want you to recognize that manliness is, is now in focus. How many of you really want to have a dad like a Hashuaris? Can you imagine the children coming in and bowing down to dad? Maybe they would even kiss his feet. Now, some of you grew up in situations, you remember the Archie Bunker motif and all that, that when dad came home, you need to just be quiet and do what dad said, keep him from being um, upset. I have to agree with you, that's not a good role model. But when I look at Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, if you look at chapter one, you're gonna see, uh, in the days of Ahasuerus, he who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa in the third year of his reign, I mean, what I want you to know is this guy had a lot of authority because he had a lot of people underneath his authority, and he, what, his time was valuable, and he didn't mess around with, with peons. You get the sense? He was too great for them. Haman, on the other hand, was so focused on his own agenda that Haman is always in the manipulative role. He's always calculating. He's always plotting. He's always trying to figure things out. He's always trying to get one leg up. You might call him an entrepreneur. You might just call him a wise guy. But man, there's a lot of dads 
who try to use this pizzazz. But I don't want to focus on these two. I want you to see Mordecai. I've been looking forward to this sermon for a while because Mordecai de demonstrates, he gives us uh, three key aspects of a man of faith. Even though in the book of Esther, all 10 chapters, they don't even mention God once, you can see clearly that Mordecai trusts in God. I always found it interesting. There are three terms that, that for, as a pastor, I'll give them to you this way and then explain them. He was discerning, dutiful, and disciplined. He was discerning, dutiful, and disciplined. And if, if I use different words to explain it, he was aware, he was responsible, and he was virtuous. This is the kind of dad that I'm praying that all of us, including myself, will be. We can't change what we were, but by God's grace, we will be what he has called us to be. Aware, responsible, virtuous, or to use those terms, discerning, dutiful, and disciplined. Even though Joe, or this average Joe, was not rich, not popular, not known for his looks, uh, he, was, he was just, yes, he had a, a distant relative connection to somebody that was important, uh, probably, you know, uh, three, four hundred years earlier, four hundred years earlier, but his family had suffered. It's almost like he had gone through the COVID shutdown. And the world kind of had come to an end. And he's just existing. Now, there are three things that you can pick up on this. And you can do a little more research for yourself. But he was discerning. He discerned the times. And that's one of the things that I pray that all men in this church will do. Discern the times because the days are evil. He knows what is going on. He has copies of the reports. He's familiar with the names. He even knows the schemes. Let me walk you through real quick because you might have missed it when you read the whole 10-chapter story. First, he knows the dilemma of his family. He is aware of the exile. He, has, he knows about the separation that people have being pulled away from their families. And he is even aware of the deaths of his relatives. Mordecai. Mordecai knew that his uncle had died. And he knew about the situation with his cousin, Hadassah. He was aware. He stayed connected to the family. He was in the know. He discerned what was happening. Secondly, he knows the dilemma of the cultural decline. When you look around here, the plot of the conspirators to assassinate the king. If you, if you study the text, you're going to find that... that uh, that Mordecai, while he's living his life, is able to see what's good behavior and what's bad behavior beside him. It's kind of like when you're driving on Route 1 and somebody passes you doing 85 miles an hour. Do you discern whether that's good or bad? Now, I didn't ask you if you were jealous. But we all can discern when something is out of the ordinary, something that is chaotic, something that shouldn't be. And when we realize that, that Mordecai, who was living his life here as, as an exile, as an exiled person, an immigrant, was actually caring about his circumstances. And when something wasn't right in his neighborhood, he did something about it. He actually thwarted the evil plans. Now, the third thing that you realize is that he is discerning of the times. He, didn't, he knows the dilemma of God's people. And I could pick this up where the plot that had come from Haman later in the story is that, that, that uh, Mordecai becomes so detailed in his knowledge of what's going on in the culture that he knows the date when the execute decree is going to happen. And, and when you realize and you get the details, as I said, he had copies of, of the Haman's report. 
He was the one that told uh, Esther about how much money, uh, how much of the uh, conspiracy money was being placed into the account. I mean, he was a better investigator than Mueller going after Trump. This guy was discerning of the family situation, of the cultural decline, and even of the plight of God's people. This is part of being discerning of the times. But I want you to know that being discerning is not enough. The Bible says he was dutiful. His knowledge about these situations led him to not just say something, or not just to see something, but to say something and to do something. If you go to James chapter 2, verse 12, you, you know that in the New Testament, James warns the people, and he ends up saying, um, don't, when you see somebody that's hungry, don't just say, be warmed and be filled. He says you ought to actually have actions that correspond. So when you look at James chapter 2, verse 16, you realize that, that our Christianity is not just in word only, but it's also in deed. And so the duty that you find out is that with all the knowledge that he had gained from discerning the times, he ends up having a responsibility to do something about it. He steps up at his own cost. If I took you to, to, uh, to Mark chapter 10, I could show you that the Good Samaritan did the same thing. Luke chapter 10, verse 35. You remember when, when the, the priest and the Levite, they saw somebody in need, and guess what ended up happening? They said, somebody else will handle. And there was somebody else. It was the true neighbor. It was a Samaritan, the most unlikely of persons. And he ends up picking up this guy, binding his wounds, taking him to the, uh, the, the next uh, little house or a cottage or hostel to be able to get him some care. He is just like the good Samaritan. He's responsible. He cares about his neighbor. He becomes a father figure even to the girl that had been abandoned by her parents' death. The little orphan was not left without a father. And so when you realize the responsibility of this man, he discerned what was going on, but then he did something. He engaged the matter. And that's the duty and the responsibility that I pray that even I would do and I pray that every man here would do, is step up to the opportunity to do what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. Mordecai, discovered some things. His duty was, was, uh, was so significant that even when he saw the plot going on him uh, against him, uh, he, he wanted to do more. And I believe he was a man of prayer, a man of patience, and you'll see that. Thirdly, though, he was a man that was disciplined. I call it virtuous. Uh, you couldn't get him to do something that was inappropriate. Even though he kind of broke the rules here, there, and everywhere. Do you remember the rules over in those days is that you had to be happy? I probably would have enjoyed living in that culture. But um, the, what I'm talking about is that if you had a grimace on your face or if you had a bad countenance and you were in the king's court, if you were in a place where the king might get a glimpse of you and you look like a jerk, a miserable fool, that was enough to get you punished. And so... When, when, this, when Mordecai discerns the times and he's responsible, he realizes that he cannot rejoice in iniquity. He cannot rejoice in error because he has genuine love. Remember, love 
thinks no evil, bears no evil, but uh, it rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And so when he sees this death sentence that's come to the people of God, on, on the twelfth month, on the certain day, there is going to be a releasing of all the enemies of, of the Jewish, of God's people. They're going to wipe them out. They're authorized by the king of Ahasuerus' decree because that was the plot of the scheming man Haman. Haman wanted to get rid of all the Jews. All of them. When, when Mordecai sees this, he says, I'm not going to be like Haman. I'm going to be a virtuous man. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to be responsible. And so the discipline that he had was that he ends up putting on the sackcloth and ashes. And even though it's in rebellion to the king's decree where everybody has to be happy, he couldn't be happy at sin because he loves God. There is no rejoicing in iniquity. And so when you realize this is the same guy who saved the life of the king many, uh, several years earlier or several months earlier, now he's there risking his own life. And finally, Esther, who is trying to figure out what's going on. They didn't have text messages and phones. So they had to send some messenger down there to figure out, Mordecai, why aren't you dressed nice? Why aren't you putting on a happy face? Why aren't you whistling? You know, why isn't just life a, a bowl of cherries? You know, and, and finally Mordecai ends up staying. Hey, this is awful. We can't do nothing. Virtuous, I don't have to panic, I don't have to fear, I don't have to have full of anxiety, but I will do what's right. Now, I told you there's three simple points. The first about the three men, the second about the three characteristics about the man of faith, and then the third is to do some consideration or some, some contemplation about their, their outcomes, the rest of the story. What happened to King Ahasuerus? Did he get dethroned? Nah. He just stayed king. The only thing that changed for King Ahasuerus is that he changed the counselors. See, he, was, he had such a big kingdom and he had, he had to maintain his authority that he changed his wife for a prettier one in Esther. But he also had to change his main counselor from Haman to one who was more trustworthy and not a scheming. And so he, he gave the signet ring that he had given to Haman, he took it back and he gave it to Mordecai. But if you look at King Ahasuerus, he doesn't seem to be impressed with God. He just is impressed with having counselors that can get the job done. That's the outcome for him. He continues just to go forward. Instead of being an enemy of the Jews, he ends up being an ally of the Jews, not because he loves the Jews, but because his counselors told him that this is a good thing to do, and he trusts his counselors. Now, I'm going to jump over to Haman for a moment. If you go to chapter 10, uh, you can see, excuse me, it's in chapter 7. In chapter 7, you can see that, that uh, poor Haman, he got what was coming to him. Uh, and that was, uh, I think it's verse 10. I have that in front of me right here. Uh, yes, he, he basically is hanged. Now, the, the rest of the story tells you that Haman was the one who had all the plans and all the schemes. He thought he had it all figured out. Just like those of you that watch movies and try to conclude the end, I do sometimes. You try to figure out what's going to happen. Well, Haman had figured out how to get to the top. He wanted to be second in command under Ahasuerus because he basically thought Ahasuerus was like a puppet. He could pull the strings and Ahasuerus would do what he wanted because that's what the Ahasuerus was doing. Ahasuerus liked it that way and Haman liked the idea of pulling the strings. 
Now, the problem was is that in the scheming, he figured out and he listened to a few of his counselors. He plotted to get rid of the Jews, but he couldn't wait till that day. So he went ahead and said, I'm going to get rid of the one that agitates me the most, that Mordecai guy. Mordecai doesn't show me respect like he's supposed to. Mordecai is the biggest jerk and fool. He is the biggest obstinance to the kingdom going forward. We need to eliminate him. He needs re-education camp. Oh, no, he's too far gone. We need to just get rid of him. So let's build a gallow 50 feet, 50 cubits high, 75 feet up, and, or even more than that. And he says, we're going to put him to death, and everybody is going to know you better bow not only to the king, but to the king's second in command. Haman was hanged on those gallows. And if you look at the story, you can only see God's fingerprints. Romans 8.28 hasn't been written yet, but God worked it together for good. It just so happened that on that night that the gallows were being built, that there was a dream that the king Ahasuerus had, and he couldn't figure things out. So he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he gets somebody else to come and try to answer some questions for him. The light bulb goes on. It couldn't have been coincidence. It's the sovereignty of God. And so God ends up having Haman show up early for that day because he was going to get authorization to put Mordecai to death. And so Haman is there, and the king says, is somebody out in the courtyard? And they say, oh, yeah, that guy's here early. Come on in. And, they, and so he says, Haman, how do you honor somebody that the king likes? <laughs> this, Haman thinks, man, that's me. He's asking me what I would do for me. And so he tells him an elaborate scheme, a great plan. And then all of a sudden the king says, do that for Mordecai. It's pretty amazing how God overruled. The very thing that Haman thought was going to be his was taken from him and it was given to another. That's the kind of dad that works so hard on his schemes that he doesn't have love. But the true kind of dad character is Mordecai. Mordecai did not seek riches. Mordecai did not seek to have a plush accommodations. Mordecai simply wanted to have a life. He didn't like being removed from Jerusalem. I think he understood the prophet Jeremiah's words. I think he was familiar with the text of Scripture. How? Because he was a God-fearer. And he told Esther, he says, Esther, you got to trust. Deliverance will come. Deliverance will come. And he implies, because I know the deliverer, I know Jesus. Now, as I wrap this up, Mordecai was not nearly as good as Jesus. He was a fallen man. Mordecai was reacting to circumstances that were in front of him. Even though he was, he was aware and he was responsible and he was virtuous, Jesus was so much more. Who for the joy that was set before him, the salvation of our souls. He left his throne on high and his kingly crown and he came to this earth for us. You can see it in the arrows. He left heaven and he went to the cross. Not because he, he, it's not because, how do I say this? He had to because there was no other way. The covenant demanded it. But he did it because he wanted to because greater love could not be shown. See, Mordecai didn't have the ability to be able to die for somebody else. But Mordecai was called to live for his God. And because of Mordecai's 
encouragement at the right time, discerning the times. He had discerned the situation with his, with his cousin. He had reared her and helped her, counseled her and guided her, that when she ends up finding herself getting this cool job in the, in the palace, she's ending up becoming the, the queen. Who would have ever dreamed of an exile getting into that position? Mordecai is still teaching and still coaching and still loving and still caring. Every day he would be outside the gate checking on Hadassah. How is Hadassah? How is Hadassah? Mordecai cared for his people. And he said to, to Esther, who knows? Maybe you're here for such a time as this, to bring deliverance. Well, I want you to know that Mordecai knew that the deliverance of God's people was not just to have them protected from a, a annihilation decree. What the deliverance we need is for salvation. Salvation. Does that make sense? We need to be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God had already been poured out on the people of God, and that's why they were in exile. Isaiah tells us over and over, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all of these guys, they were like crying, people of God, trust God! But they didn't. They kept leaning on their own understanding. And God says, then whom I love, I will chasten. And he brought the Babylonians in and wiped them out, took out an exile group back, to, back to, to captivity. You see, God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. But if you sow to the spirit, you reap life everlasting. The reason why Jesus was so much better than Mordecai is because Jesus could, could pay for your salvation. Mordecai could only talk about it. Here we stand today. In 2022, what kind of, which one of the three men set a role model for your dad? Obviously, it's Mordecai. Which one of the three men did your dad choose to mimic? Did he mimic one that had to be in control and keep it? Did he mimic Haman? who had to have schemes and plans, who had to be able to have the riches and be able to get his agenda done? Or was he like Mordecai, who could discern and love and care? I pray that your dad was a lot more like Mordecai. But the issue is not to go back in the past and redo your dad. You know, like hit the few buttons, almost like some kind of computer program could regenerate how your dad would be. No, no, no. You got what you got. You learn from your dad either what to do or what not to do. Praise God for your dad. You learned a lot from him, I hope, especially to stay away from sin and to run to Christ. But this message today is for us, the living. It's for us from this point forward. The application to be discerning, to be dutiful, and to be disciplined. I pray that that's true for every man of God that no matter what comes, even if our government was to somehow make a decree against Christians that said, you guys will go to jail if you rebel against this or this or this. If you maintain those biblical standards that we think are judgmental, you will be judged by us. Because we'll be judgmental. When you look at it, no matter what comes, let's be like men like Mordecai who stay the path, and praise God, he was able to see a deliverance. At the end game for him, I'll just read it for you. 
If you look at uh, chapter 10, uh, Esther chapter 10. It's not everywhere I expected when this, when this book began, but it said, verse 3 of chapter 10, For Mordecai the Jew was now second in rank under King Ahasuerus. Mordecai, the average Joe, was now great among his own believing people. And he was popular even with those that, well, he was really popular because he had saved all the Jews. For he had sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to his people. You end the story with Mordecai being a type of Christ. He was not Christ. But I pray for all of us today that we will see many, many more godly men who, no matter what circumstances come, will not cave, will stand up for what we believe in Christ. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for the message of hope. The 10 chapters of Esther tell us some fascinating stories. It's high drama. There's beautiful people and powerful people. There's popular people and there's scheming people. And then there's just basic people. People that know the difference between right and wrong. And there's a few people that actually know God. I thank you, O oh Lord, that there was at least one who was steadfast, who was immovable, who was committed to the work of God. I thank you that through his counsel, we have heard the same message. Who knows? Even maybe we're here today in this era to be able to be like Esther, to do something for the kingdom of God for such a time as this. We thank you for Christ's salvation that makes this even possible. In whose name I pray.